Hey everyone at ASAP Now. This is Amy Ho, your assistant editor of ASAP Now and your usual podcast host of Nowcast. But we have got a special bonus episode this month for you. As many of you know, National Women Physicians Day is February 3rd, and that celebrates the birth of Dr. Elizabeth Blackwell, the first female physician. A lot has luckily changed since Dr. Blackwell attained her medical degree in 1849. We have antibiotics, we understand sterility, and women are now largely accepted in medicine. In fact, in some specialties, we're the majority. While emergency medicine is not one of those specialties, we're actually still the minority in emergency medicine, we are still very well represented. And you can see that with the ASAP presidents, the ASAP council, even just with your colleagues, I imagine you work with many women who are emergency medicine physicians. And I have to say, the ASAP Now board is also stacked with strong women. There is Dr. Catherine Marco, our associate editor, myself as assistant editor, Dr. Gorgans as resident editor, and our amazing team with Wiley and ASAP, who are all also heavily female. In celebration of National Women Physicians Day, we have this special bonus podcast with our resident editor, Dr. Sophia Gorgans. So go ahead and enjoy with a very special guest for this bonus episode. Hello, everyone. This is Sophia Gorgans, a third-year emergency medicine resident at Zucker Northwell in New York and the current resident editor at ASEP Now. Today, I'm here with Dr. Pamela Benson, the first woman to do an emergency medicine residency and the first woman elected to the ASEP board. Dr. Benson went to medical school at Women's Medical College of Pennsylvania and completed her residency in emergency medicine at Medical College of Pennsylvania. In her long and illustrious career, she became a trailblazer for women in emergency medicine. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Benson. Thank you for having me. Uh, I understand that you were interested in medicine at an early age. Can you tell me about some of those childhood memories and what prompted you into medicine and eventually emergency medicine? I'm not sure where it came from, but I will tell you that the family story is I made my first diagnosis when I was four, when my aunt got appendicitis and I kept insisting she had appendicitis. Now, my diagnosis turned out to be correct, but my treatment, which was spraying her with perfume, was definitely not even in those days acceptable. I guess I was dealing with the humors that were were around her instead of just the appendix. Well, I'm glad that you ended up in emergency medicine. It sounds like you took on the mantle of trailblazing early on in your career. I heard that while you were still in medical school, you pitched an EM residency program to the American Medical Association. That sounds like it was a lot of responsibility. Can you tell me a little bit about what that was all about? Um, I want to give you one more, if I, if you don't mind, I'm, I'd like to do one more past history because I have a bunch of cousins sure. out there who um, thank my grandmother for the fact that they're still alive because the rule was that I was only allowed to make medicine if it was made out of something from the refrigerator. But all of my cousins will vouch for the fact that being bandaged was not the problem but having to take the medicines I was able to make out of things like Tabasco sauce and horseradish and whatever uh, was not quite uh, the medicine of today. So that's my my second previous story. Um, As an intern, now today we don't have internships, but back in the 1970s when I was starting my career, I graduated in 71, and you had to do an internship to actually be a legitimate doctor. You graduated and got your MD, but you could only function as an intern in a hospital with that first level MD. You couldn't go out and practice in any way, shape or form. And I had met with Dr. David Wagner and Ethel Weinberg and we wanted to start an internship in emergency medicine. They had the interest, I was interested in taking it, but in those days, the AMA had to approve every internship. So the decision was made that I would go to Chicago uh, 
meet with members of the committee that were going to determine whether or not our internship would be allowed and would be approved so that I could go out and get a real M- get the final MD and practice emergency medicine. So they sent me off to Chicago and I happened to be seven months pregnant with my second child. And I walk into the room in Chicago and every person in the room had a Y gene and their average age was probably about uh, probably younger than I am now in their early 70s. So here I am in my 20s, seven months pregnant in a room full of men, all of whom probably had grandchildren older than I was. And I had to make a pitch for this. The bottom line was that when they sent me the letter approving my internship, the letter said that they were approving it so that women could have scheduled hours. What I did not know at the time, and I actually only learned about two years ago, was that Dr. Ethel Weinberg, uh, excuse me, Weinstein, who had been one of the deans at the Medical College of Pennsylvania, had also gone to Chicago because she was very active in the AMA. And when she was at an AMA meeting, she also got some of these guys together and made a pitch. And she actually had told the story and somebody had written it up, I had never seen it, that basically they patted her on the head and said, if you girls really want this, we'll give it to you. And so she had, even though she was a dean of a medical school, I mean, one of the deans, um, she had received basically the same treatment that I was, which was we got patted on the head and given this because we were women. Well, Needless to say, when the letter came, I was absolutely irate. I couldn't believe that that was the reason we got it. I'm storming around our apartment, and my husband looks at me and he says, Pam, you got what you wanted. It doesn't matter how you got it. You got it. We're, we're a go for this. And it took him hours to calm me down and finally be able to say, okay, I'm not going to write a nasty letter. I am just going to accept the fact and move ahead. And basically, that's what I ended up doing. He was wiser than I was, and we were very grateful that it it was an actual program, that it wasn't something I had to cobble together. I had actually considered taking an internship year in surgery, one in medicine, one in peds, and one in OB, to put together my own program, and I didn't have to do that. So it sounds like you were able to get what you wanted, even if it was not through necessarily the means that you wanted. Um, Yes. Uh, And, uh, you know, it's a I guess part of it is I hate to think that somehow it was because I was a woman that I got it. You really kind of want to get it because they didn't get the fact that we needed emergency medicine. I think that's what bothered me most was that that they were condescending and going to give it to us because we were women, they were not recognizing as the AMA that we had a needed specialty out there or a need out there that was not being met, that they were not meeting, that I wanted to meet. And so I think the fact that our goals were so different was was what was galling to me. So this must have been one of the first emergency medicine residencies uh, in the country. And as one of the first women, or if not the first woman in an EM residency, there must have been a lot of obstacles uh, and issues that you faced. Can you tell me a little bit about those? Um, I think I have to give you a little background. Um, Women's Med became the Medical College of Pennsylvania. I was at that single institution for my entire training, for med school and for my internship and residency. I was the first intern in the country in emergency medicine. There were four of us, three guys and myself. And residencies, any hospital in the country back then, any hospital could just say, we have a residency in surgery. And the surgeons in the hospital would take on residents. So basically it was an apprenticeship system Once you passed your internship, 
there was no approval mechanism. There was no uh, residency review committee. There was no um, mechanism to get that residency approved. So basically, we were the first approved program in the entire country. The residency that preceded us had only residents. They didn't have any interns. Those doctors had to have completed the internship and that was the Dayton program. And the Dayton program, and this is another little piece of history, um, in 1971, in the fall of 1971, ASAP had a meeting in Miami, Florida. And I went to that meeting along with the four male residents from the Dayton program. And we sat on the beach in, in Miami, Florida, and had what I would call the first EMRA meeting. It was a group of one intern and four residents in emergency medicine. I was in the first year. They were in their second year of residency because they started in 70, but they couldn't start as interns. They started as residents. And so the five of us sat on the beach discussing all of the kinds of things that EMRA discusses today. And it was a phenomenal experience for me because I didn't know there was anybody else in the country being trained in this. I mean, we didn't have the internet, (laughs) you know, we didn't have this kind of communication. And so for me, just having colleagues, it, it was a phenomenal experience. And being in a group ASAP 1971 and finding other physicians were actually doing what I wanted to do because we didn't have anybody in Philadelphia practicing emergency medicine and emergency medicine in the community I grew up in upstate New York was the local family practitioner whose practice is still open he's not obviously he's not in it but that was what emergency medicine was it was your local doctor so um it, it was quite an experience to be there in the first. What kind of challenges? I was at what was Women's Med. I did not experience very much female-male discrimination because we had 60 women every year in our medical school class at Women's Med. The residents there, the attendings there were primarily women. We actually had a beautiful place to have a residency for emergency medicine. Two blocks from our hospital in one direction was Grace Kelly's home. Two blocks in the other direction were the high rise, um, low income projects. We had the Schuylkill River, we had Route 1, we had the Schuylkill Highway, we got drownings, we got uh, gunshots, we got Uh, socialites who had too much to drink. We got um, car accidents. We got a big variety where we were. But as far as discrimination, we didn't get it from our attendings because many of them were, in fact, the majority of them were women. We didn't get discrimination from our patients because the locals knew we were emergency, that we were women. They came to women's med. It had been there for a hundred years already. And so they were used to seeing a woman doctor. I actually asked a man once, you know, did it bother him coming and seeing women? Oh, he said, no, you guys take much better care of us than the men. And so um, I did not feel in my training any um, real discrimination. I had problems with some professors. I had a, my first child was born in my sophomore year and the head of pathology told me that I was going to be out for three weeks after the baby was born. And he said to me, he said, oh, that's okay. When you come back, every one of your quizzes will count double until you're caught up with the number of quizzes you have to take. So he would not give me any leeway on that. That was the deal. Now, other departments gave me the entire semester to get caught up. Um, Some of them would have given me longer, I even think. Microbiology plated all my plates. All I had to do was read them. I didn't do any busy work. Every department helped me. Pathology, 
there helped me was each of those quizzes were going to count double. Well, there was no way as a first time nursing mother that I could handle that. It wasn't going to work. So I went in every single day, wrote my name on the paper and put my pencil down. I did not answer one question. I had a zero at the end of that course. But we had a rule in our hospital, in our med school, that if you pass national boards, part one, they had to pass you. Anything that you had failed, they had to pass you. I passed my boards in pathology, and I passed pathology, and not one of my emergency medicine patients ever asked me what my pathology grade was. So I got through it. Probably not a good way to do it, but it worked. And um, I think that's the closest to discrimination that I had come. I mean, he obviously was not going to make any, um, you know, accommodation for the fact that I was pregnant. Um, So you've kind of already touched on this with talking about your pregnancy, but I know that during medical school and then residency and after that attendingship, you were balancing the role of motherhood with your career. Can you talk a little bit about that? Uh, I didn't plan it. (laughs) Poor planning. But once again, let's let's go back to um, the pill was brand new and um, condoms and diaphragms were the most, you know, reliable way not to get pregnant. And I got pregnant three times. My daughter was born sophomore year in medical school, as I said. Uh, the challenge there was finding childcare, but there was another young woman in uh, our neighborhood whose daughter was a year older than my daughter. And um, she was willing to uh, take care of my daughter while I went to... Now, mind you, I was in med school, and med school was Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m., half-day Saturday. Um, I was married at the time... My my husband, who's been my husband all along, I don't mean at the time, um, was a seaman. He was a deckhand on a tugboat, but he worked like two days on, three days off, three days on, two days off in the New York City Harbor. So he would come home and the days he was home, he would take care of the baby. But I needed somebody when he wasn't home. So this neighbor of mine took care of my baby. She needed the money. I needed um, the daycare. I hate to tell you what it, what I paid her. I mean, to, even today I feel guilty about it. Um, but it, it didn't cost a great deal. We were able to afford it. And so with her, things went along well. I got pregnant again and was supposed to deliver partway through my senior year. And that child was born early with a Potter syndrome. So with the second child, we were dealing with um, grief and bereavement from losing a child at birth, even though she was not even though she had many, many congenital anomalies, uh, learning that when they did the autopsy, learning that she um, really would never have lived back then because she had no kidneys, Potter syndrome kids have no kidneys. uh, That was an experience that you don't ask for those things to happen, but I think it changes how you are as a person and as a doctor. And in emergency medicine, that has come back to my benefit on numerous occasions when I have had to tell families about the death of a loved one. And then um, in my senior year, I got pregnant again with my son. He was he was my only planned pregnancy, by the way. And um, I delivered the first month of my uh, residency. <coughs> Excuse me. And um, I had phlebitis with him. So I was taking heparin shots. Uh, By the way, when I talk to you about the medicine, it's very different. It was very different back then. So don't make any judgments on the, if I talk about treatments and things like that, because they were very different. So um, my son was, obviously I was anxious about that pregnancy and dealt with those issues. And 
I had actually, ironically enough, come to terms with it because with my second pregnancy, my very first day back in clinic, my patient was a new patient and she had had seven stillbirths, had no live children. So here I am with a two and a half year old live child and I've had only one, she wasn't a stillbirth, but a um, infant mortality. And so I had, she, that patient helped me tremendously deal with that whole issue. So my son was born first um, month of my residency and he was colicky. And my babysitter, finally, after three months of taking care of him, informed me on Monday, if he doesn't stop crying this week, I'm afraid you're going to have to find other childcare. There's no way I can take this any longer. I used to love going on night duty, by the way, because it meant I didn't have to be home listening to the baby cry because he literally cried for three months. Uh, and typical of my son, he stopped crying on Thursday afternoon. And by Friday afternoon, she was thrilled to have him. So uh, that initial childcare issue was a big problem. I had wonderful parents who stepped in when I needed them. My grandmother had lived in the area, not right where I could use her on a regular basis or anything, but if I really needed somebody, she could step in. And I think the secret for me was I had a supportive husband, and I know that it's horrible to kind of say these things because some people don't have them, but I think if we can find substitutes, if, if we have a plan B, and the plan B may be getting the kids in the car and driving two and a half hours to your mother's house, dropping the kids off, driving two and a half hours back to go on duty. Sometimes those plan Bs have to go into effect. But on the whole, I only did that once. On the whole, I had a supportive husband who was at sea half the time, but when he was home, was always there for us. I had this wonderful babysitter, and I subsequently had two other wonderful babysitters who took care of my kids, did a wonderful job with them, and we're still friends, by the way. Ironically enough, my daughter and one of her crib mates from one of these babysitters got hooked up again after college. They moved to the same area. Turns out they were both horsewomen, and to this very day, they're still good friends and ride together and, you know, the relationship is still there. So lots of good things grew out of it. Um, when we, in my first job, when I took my first job, my husband got sick and he was in bed for two and a half years. And that was when we learned we live on one salary. There's no way we would have ever again taken the two salaries and spent them. So we basically spent our entire fiscal life living on either his salary or my salary because we knew that the other person needed the leeway to be sick or to take a chance on a new job or to stay home, whatever was needed. So that was another uh, hurdle that we had to, to face. Um, he turned out to have a Guillain-Barre syndrome that was all EB virus, addicted to steroids, had to get off the steroids, took him, uh, took him another two and a half years to get off the steroids. So there were challenges from a lot of angles, but we lived in a supportive community. My babysitters were fantastic. My children didn't go to daycare because there was no daycare. It just plain did not exist. And so um, there were no places that our kids could go. So I think that there were challenges that we had. And by the way, we didn't have Pampers. I think my first child, it was all diapers. And then Pampers kind of came in between the two of them. So there were, you know, there are a lot of things that people today have a little bit easier. I did learn one thing. I didn't ever clean my house. 
the minute I got a paycheck, I let somebody else clean my house. It was the one area in which I hated it, first of all. But in addition, um, I couldn't afford that time. I couldn't afford time doing something I hated doing. I would have rather done another shift. Let me do a shift to pay somebody to clean my house. And so we learned over time that with, with things that we weren't good at, that we didn't like doing, it was worth spending the money to have those things done for us. Um, the things I liked doing, I kept doing. We really, uh, today I think people face a lot of challenges that I didn't have to face. Uh, I did face a lot of, I don't know that it was criticism because it usually wasn't expressed. When I was in med school, we lived in a, an Italian ghetto. Everybody around us was family and we were kind of the outsiders. And the women who of course stayed home with their children couldn't understand how I could go out every day and go to the hospital and my children went to somebody else. I don't think anybody would get that today. Other uh, types of problems, I think, are just parental problems. I think, you know, how do you how do you divvy up finances? How do you divvy up time? How do you divvy up chores? And I think we all have we all have to work through those. Nobody gives us a book. You know, if kids came with a book, it would be great, but they don't. If marriage came with a book on how to succeed, they just don't. I've probably made more mistakes than most people will make but I was very fortunate that it has worked out. Between balancing family life and your career, you still managed to find enough free time to also get involved with ASEP, and most notably, you were the first woman elected to the ASEP board. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about what that was like? I'm an ASEP addict. I'm an ASEP junkie. That very first meeting uh, in 1971, Dr. Wagner sent me to the meeting with a name in my pocket. And I spent the first morning uh, during breaks asking people if they knew this guy, Ron Crome. And most of you are too young to even remember that name perhaps, but Ron was an ASEP president eventually. He initiated Annals of Emergency Medicine. It was called JSEP, Journal of Emergency Medicine back then. And so I would go around and say, do you know him? And finally somebody said, oh, let me introduce you to Ron. So I got introduced to Ron and Ron was from Detroit. He was from Henry Ford and um, Judy Tintinelli was one of his um, eventual residents. And Ron was just ecstatic. He couldn't believe that we had trainees in emergency medicine. And so he took me around ASAP, all, all these people at the meeting. Now, let me tell you, that meeting was our scientific assembly, just like our fall assemblies. There were 300 people there. And I, literally, I think Ron introduced me to every one of them. He showed me off as, as if I was a medal on his chest or something. Um, wow, look at this. We have, a, we have this, this student in emergency medicine. We have an intern. And then he took me to the board meeting. And he made me stand up, introduced me, made me stand up. Um, he, uh, he saw to it that I went with some group for every single meal. I didn't pay for a single meal at that meeting because so, some group of people took me. Everybody wanted to know what it was like, what we were learning, how did we plan our curriculum. And it turns out that most of these people were planning to start programs. And so what they were getting was they were getting the insides scuttlebutt on uh, what the program that I was in was doing, because at that point there were just the two. There was Medical College of Pennsylvania and um, Dayton. And so um, Ron got me on a committee. They Literally at that board meeting, they said, well, wait a minute, we need to have you on a committee. So they had an undergraduate medical education that covered residency stuff. And they asked if I would sit on the committee. And I'm like, what do you say? You're standing up in front of the board of directors. And I'm like, well, yeah, I mean, yeah, I'd love to. And so from, the, I mean, that was just the beginning and it kept growing. 
Um, I eventually sat on almost every committee in ASAP. A lot of it was if you showed up. You know, showing up is literally, as they say, 50% of the success. If you show up for things and you do things, you volunteer to do things and you do them and you do them well, you keep getting asked. And so um, I was asked to run for the board of directors uh, probably about seven years later. And I was tremendously honored the thought that they wanted me. And I lost. Well, to be honest with you, that did not bother me. I would have liked to have won. But back in those days, people didn't know you. People, It was a small group, but it was growing. And the people that were voting for you didn't necessarily know people. So the people who had a name, who were published and things like that, tended to get elected. So three years later, when they came back and asked me to run again, I said, sure, thinking maybe I'd get elected. I didn't. Um, I ended up running the next time I ran for vice speaker and didn't get elected to that. And so the third time they asked me to run for the board, I thought, oh, well, maybe three times is lucky. Didn't get elected. And my husband and I had a serious discussion. It wasn't going to happen. He was convinced it was because I was a woman. I think finally he convinced me that that was the reason. And so the next time they asked, I said, no. I said, no way am I running. You know, you're, you've got three women that you're running. You alternate Ellen and Vera and me. I said, you're not electing any of us. And as far as I'm concerned, you can take me off the list. Go find someone else. So um hung up that phone call and a couple days later I got another one from the nominating committee from someone else, another friend. I mean, at this point, these people are all my friends. So come on, Pam, you need to run. And I said, no, not going to do it. I said, unless you can guarantee I'm going to get elected, I'm not running again. That's I've had enough. I, you know, I'm not a masochist. So, okay. That person said fine and hung up. And a few days later, I got a third call. And at this point, I was exhausted by it, to be honest with you, because the conflict is you want to do it. You're honored that you're being asked. And but but, you know, after you've lost four times, you know, you just don't want to anymore. And so finally, I gave in on the on the third phone call. And one of the things that had happened when I lost the previous time um, was that my husband was there because he was worried that I would lose and that I'd be upset. And when I did lose, I was I wanted to go home. And he said, no, you're going to the reception tonight. We're going to show up. You're going to put on a good face. And so we walked into the reception that evening. And luckily, he was on my right side. Because we walked in and a man from the South, and I don't know, I, to this day, I couldn't tell you where he was from or which person it was. He looked at me and at my, met my husband and looked at me and said, Pam, I just want you to know we are so disappointed you lost. You are one of the most qualified people for our board. But you know us Southern gentlemen, we just can't vote for woman. Well, my right arm would have probably broken his nose had it impacted, but my husband quickly grabbed it and kept me from punching this guy. I really had trouble with this. So when I finally decided to run again and they asked me at Meet the Candidates, the Meet the Candidates program that we have, by the way, which I started for small chapters because we didn't have any way to meet candidates, but that's a whole nother story. So um, at Meet the Candidates, I was asked the question um, about running for the board and everything. And uh, I told the story of what this man had said. And I said to the group, I said, you know, I don't want you to vote for me because I'm a woman, but I'm going to ask you a favor. Tomorrow when you vote, please don't vote against me because I'm a woman. If I truly am qualified, which many of you have said, please vote for me. 
if I'm not qualified, I understand. I can I can deal with that. But not to vote for me because I was a woman was really rankling. But that was the the first time it was really put in my face that being a woman might be a problem. I didn't have that problem in my emergency department. I moved to a community that had women physicians in it. They were the wives of physicians, and most of them were practicing. And none of my emergency patients cared whether I was a woman. They just wanted me to take care of their pain, their vomiting, their bleeding, whatever it was. So um, I think today when you deal with uh, the sexism that goes on, I think you have a much more subtle type of, of problem. But I honest to godly feel that you need to call it out. You know, don't wonder like I did for many years, is this because I'm a woman? You know, the fact that this man was willing to tell me said something about my unwillingness to accept it, that he had to actually come out and say it. And then when you finally did get onto the board, which you did, and were the first woman successfully elected to the ASAP board, which is wonderful, congratulations, um, you, you continued to encounter some of those same uh, behaviors. Is that right? Um, I think what happened on the board was um, habit. I think things happened because people had muscle memory. Um, Before I got to my first board meeting, I got a letter. It was a form letter. It was obviously a form letter, although it said, Dear Pam, um, that basically told me to wear a dark suit and a tie for the board meeting, uh, for the um, picture for the board. And somebody had taken the... um, uh, the initiative to red pencil out the word tie. So I basically got the guy's letter and I laughed at it, to be honest with you, because I, to me it was just a form letter and I wasn't going to worry about it. But what I did was I went and I bought the two gaudiest ties I could find. And um, back then a woman's business suit was generally a uh, gray flannel um, blazer, um, blue skirt with um, pearls. You wore pearls with your blouse. And so when we got to the board picture, the time to take the picture, we're all standing where they've placed us now and we're all ready for him to click the picture. And I said, wait, 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 guys, I need your help before they take this picture. I said, I didn't know, I've never picked a tie before and I didn't know which one to wear. And I pull out of my pocket these two god-awful, ugly, gaudy ties. And I said, please help me. Which of these two ties goes best with my suit? Well, that broke the ice because it, the using humor on it at that point was, they finally recognized that, oh my God, you know, This is not, we've got to change what we're doing because we're no longer an old guys club. Uh, The next thing that happened, which again, I think it was totally inadvertent. and, And I will share with you that the ending of this story has been, everybody puts their own ending to it. But the beginning of the story is we were knee deep in discussion of some major issue for ASAP when we broke for lunch at one of the board meetings. And everybody is chatting about it. We're, we're getting up and going to the restrooms before lunch and everything. And all, all of the rest of the board and the, and the staff, uh, except the, um, at that point, secretarial side of it, walked into the men's room and they're still discussing the issue. And I stood outside that men's room doing a lot of thinking. I mean, you know, I'm mother of three kids. I've had three pregnancies. There's nothing here that I haven't seen with patients. You know, as I tell some people, I know you, uh, I know you have more orifices than you do. And I know where to put my finger to get to them. And um, I'm standing there thinking, hmm, now, should I go in and participate as I was before they walked through that door in this conversation? Or should I be polite 
and just, you know, stand here and wait for them. What is my role? What am I supposed to be doing? So I made a decision and I did not, despite the fact that the rumor is I went into the men's room, I did not. And when we got back to the board meeting, I raised my hand and I said, I make a motion that when we leave this room, we cease discussion on substantive issues. And if that's not going to be accepted, I will join you in the men's room so we can continue this. Well, needless to say, again, humor won out. And the agreement from then on in was that the discussion ended at the boardroom door. And we could, anytime we got back together, everybody could discuss it. But that nobody was going to be making decisions or um, giving crucial information over a urinal. So those were the two that stand out. And I think those were inadvertent, to be honest with you. I think that was muscle memory. I mean, I'm glad that you stood up for yourself in any case. Um, the, fa- I mean, the face that the the face on the guys was like, oh, I'm not sure we want that. <laughs> when I said I'd go into the men's room. Uh, now, on, on top of being uh, one of our, uh, you know, first women on the ASEP board, you also seem to have enough free time that you've uh, written a book called Physicians Documentation Prescription. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about that book? Um, I actually did not write that during uh, active practice. I had the fortunate uh, experience of uh, needing a knee replacement, actually needing two of them in 2010. And I was asked if I could write a book, an e-learning course for coders to help them learn the anatomy and physiology needed for ICD-10, the diagnostic coding book that is used to determine diagnosis codes that we currently use. And so in doing so, I kept looking at the codes and looking at the nomenclature and how they had put them together. And I realized that they weren't difficult, but every doctor that I spoke to was having real problems with it. And long story short, the codes themselves are based upon the acuity of the disease on the linkage of diseases. For instance, is your hypertension um, a result of kidney disease? Is your kidney, excuse me, is your kidney disease the result of diabetes? What is related, the links that are there? The change from ICD-9 to ICD-10 was getting laterality in there. So um, the codes, basically any paired paired organ code increased, it doubled the codes because they had right and left, but they also had bilateral and they had, you didn't mention it. So a lot of the increase in codes was laterality. (coughs) Excuse me. Then they needed the site, the specific site. It wasn't just the intestine, it was where in the intestine. Um, The etiology of things, they wanted to know, you had a a culture there from the sputum. Was this pneumonia related to the culture? Is this pneumonia pneumonia? Is this, uh, you know, strep pneumonia? Is this COVID pneumonia? So the etiology of the pneumonia became important. And then the type, what type of diabetes, what stage of kidney disease, what type of cancer, et cetera. Um, They wanted a diagnosis. They did not want to have signs and symptoms. They wanted to have some of the specific details, for instance, the uh, A1C. uh, what, What is it now compared to what was it last week, kind of? What's the occurrence today? They wanted comorbid conditions. They wanted complications, the C. And then, question mark, what do you write if it's unknown? So I came up with this mnemonic, all, set, doc, acuity, linkage, laterality, all, set, site, etiology, and type, doc, a diagnosis, the occurrence, comorbidities, and complications, and then If you're uncertain, as emergency physicians, we can write evidence of. 
So you're testing somebody for a non-STEMI. You write down your diagnosis is evidence of non-STEMI because you don't have any evidence to disprove it yet. The chest pain, the EKG being normal in many cases, the troponin not yet, I mean, they're here an hour after they start to have problems, the troponin may still be in the normal range. So, but you're, you, in your mind, the history is evidence of a non-STEMI and that's what you're looking for. You're looking for, for evidence to rule it in or evidence to rule it out. So very strict rules about what they can code. Very, and so I'm, I spent 10 years on the road teaching physicians how to use that mnemonic to make sure that they got credit for how sick their patient was. And as I got into my late 70s, I thought, you know, if I die now, every bit of this information that's on my slides and that I've been teaching is gonna be lost. And so I sat down one day and I began putting it together. And I am in the third year of publishing the book, haven't sold very many copies and don't care whether I ever do. I accomplished my goal. I know that if I die tomorrow, that information is available. I've given it to my own doctors. My daughter has a copy, she's a physician. Uh, the first thing I do when I go to see a new doctor is take my book and tell them, you may never read this, you may never use it, but I want you to have it because I don't wanna die with this knowledge in my head. And so basically I've written that book and um, I have fun with it. To be very honest with you, I review charts over the internet. I retired from emergency medicine in 2015. I miss it terribly, by the way. Miss it absolutely horribly. Uh, recently had another opportunity to diagnose appendicitis. I've done it now three times in my family over the phone and just fairly recently did it another time and would love to be practicing still. But I know that that's not something I'm capable of anymore but I am thrilled because I review charts over the internet and I am basically being paid by your hospital to look at your chart and determine, is that acuity there? Have you given me the stage of CKD? Have you given me a diagnosis or are you just giving me signs and symptoms that don't count at all? And so I have had the opportunity now to take all of that knowledge, put it together, and I, I don't know what I would do with myself if I wasn't able to work. When it comes to ASEP, I'm still active. I'm now doing a newsletter for the group of physicians who are looking to make a section of those of us who are retired or approaching retirement. We're not quite retired, however you want to put it. And we're hoping that we will be there as mentors for people who are going through any stage of their career, because we've almost finished going through them all. Um, I've been fortunate enough to be a patient on numerous occasions, and my husband had a um, widow maker in the emergency department, and seven minutes later, still alive, had his first two stents. So we've had an opportunity now to traverse the whole spectrum and to uh, hopefully have an opportunity now as mentors and coaches to share with anybody that is interested, um, you know, the experiences we've had. I can't give you concrete advice in the sense that anything I say might not apply to your situation, but there might be something that you can use in any of the things that those of us who have done it and walked through this, and I will tell you, we emergency physicians are phenomenal. When you look at your friends and you realize at my age, and I'm 78 now, going to uh, just turned 78 in December, and I look at my friends and what each of them has done something different. We all have a story to tell. We've each done something different. We have a lot of stuff to share, not only with each other, but with anybody that cares. And some of it might be useful to you. There might just be a kernel of information in there, or it might not be useful at all. So, um, you know, it's just been a great career. I've been thrilled to do it from age four on. 
I was lucky enough to get into medical school, lucky enough to have that opportunity to convince the AMA and uh, to find a great place to practice in Maine and start EMS stuff going. I don't regret one moment of it. And, I'm, and now with this new opportunity with ASAP, I'm really excited that um, hopefully our newsletter will get out to people. And if you have something to contribute, we're, you don't have to be retired to work with us. Well, it sounds like your family was lucky to have you diagnosing their appendicitis back when you were four and even now in retirement. Um, and we've been lucky to have you join us on the ASAP Now podcast. It's been so wonderful speaking with you, Dr. Benson. Um, we appreciate your time today and, and all the trailblazing that you've done for women in emergency medicine. Thank you so much for having me and good luck to every one of you in emergency medicine. And there are lots of niches that you can fill in emergency medicine. So if you haven't found the niche that you are comfortable in yet, give it a little time, keep looking, keep yourself open to opportunities and come to ASAP. ASAP friends are friends for life. All right, thanks Dr. Benson. Women have come a long way in emergency medicine and I am personally inspired by leaders who came before me like Dr. Benson whose efforts have improved the outlook for all of us. Now let's keep that movement going by coming to AWEP's Power Up Workshop held in conjunction with ASEP's 2023 Leadership and Advocacy Conference. It features an incredible slate of emergency medicine women led by keynote speaker, Dr. Dara Cass. Picture small group discussions about values, boundaries, leadership, and purpose designed to help us feel reinvigorated and empowered to keep us marching forward. Space is limited. Save $100 on LAC23 registration when you use promo code POWERUP, that's P-O-W-E-R-U-P, at asup.org LAC. Again, that's promo code POWERUP at asap.org slash LAC.